to my Roots of Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last podcast out, I was interviewing Richie Sadlier about his life in football and beyond. This time out, well, it's fair to say this time out finds us in a very strange moment. As I speak, the country is in the middle of a coronavirus-related lockdown. Schools are shut. Restaurants are closed, self-isolation is in effect, and each day brings with it news of dozens of new coronavirus cases in Ireland. For many people, their livelihood has vanished, along with their capacity to leave the house even, and to go about their day as normal. It sounds a bit like the stuff of a Hollywood movie, I'm sure most people are, are thinking that at times, but it's very real and it's very worrying, and it's hard to know what to do. But one of the best pieces of advice that I've received recently has been to do what you always do in as much as you can, to keep as much of that old routine going and to look for new ways of establishing new good routines. So yes, the venues are shut. The way I see it, that shouldn't stop me or anyone else from spotlighting people of talent. And so this podcast this month comes to you with that purpose. Because someone who fits under that umbrella very well is Nancy Harris, the Irish playwright who is becoming increasingly well known for her work, which includes The Beacon and the play Our New Girl, which premiered recently at the Gate Theatre in Dublin. Brought up in Dunleary in Dublin and Baltimore in West Cork, growing up, Nancy Harris was told by her father that he thought she might become a writer. Both he and her mum were probably good judges in that respect, because both of them work in the media. Her father is the columnist Owen Harris, and her mother is Anne Harris, former editor of the Sunday Independent. But was it hard to break out of that shadow? Well, Nancy Harris moved to Birmingham as a young woman to study playwriting, and she won the Stuart Parker Award for her first full-length play, No Romance. She has also become well-known for her adaptations, which include the Red Shoes at the Gate Theatre in 2017, and she's been BAFTA-nominated for her work in television. She's also been involved with Waking the Feminists, the group which agitates for gender equality in theatre, and was initiated in 2015 to fight against paternalistic attitudes, particularly in Irish theatre. In this podcast, which was conducted recently in Dublin, we'll be talking about Waking the Feminists, And we'll also be chatting about motherhood, in part because it's a big theme of her play, Our New Girl. I hope you enjoy. Nancy Harris, you are very welcome to my Roots of Showing. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we find ourselves upstairs in number eight, across from the Gate Theatre, uh, where your play is being performed. You have four plays. This is an older play, which is uh, being brought back by the Gate Theatre, coming in the wake of the success of The Beacon, which I saw um, some months back and absolutely loved. Uh, For the benefit, though, of people who have not seen the play, uh, tell us a little bit about it. 
So the play is sort of a, a psychological thriller in a way. Um, it's about a, a woman called Hazel, who is a was a very high-powered lawyer and is now seemingly a stay-at-home mother who set up her own business selling olive oil. And what this, the opening scene of the play is Hazel standing in her own kitchen in a slightly flustered panic state as a very calm nanny, who's called Annie from Sligo, says, I'm your new nanny. I've been hired by your husband. I'm here to help you with your child because I hear you're very stressed and not coping. And that is literally the opening scene. And her husband is away. He's a doctor, works at Doctors Without Borders. But he's set up his own version of that. And she literally can't get hold of him by phone. So she has no idea if what this woman is saying to her is true. And that is kind of the opening premise of the play. So um, what what the play basically, what happens in the play is essentially the nanny stays in the house, kind of infiltrates this family and starts to realize that the mother and her son, Daniel, who's eight, that also I should mention this woman is heavily pregnant, eight months pregnant with her second child, um, that she and her, her son don't have a good relationship. There, there's a deeply kind of disturbed, fractious relationship going on. And the nanny starts to realize that really all is not well in this house with this mother and this son. And it's sort of about what her presence is a catalyst for and also what she starts to see and what does that do Uh, if you're the stranger in a house and you're witnessing something dark what does that do to you where's your responsibility where's the boundary what should you be doing so the play is dealing with all of that it's an interesting one to think about because the bond between a mother and their child is always seen as almost sacrosanct and women if they don't have that bond or if they don't have it for a period, often feel tremendously guilty about that and find themselves unable to discuss it. So was that maybe one of the the kind of thematic concerns that you wanted to play into, or was it just very unconscious as you started writing? It was actually really unconscious. I think for me, I was quite, I was in my 20s when I started writing this play, so I actually wasn't even really around that many children. Like now I have three godchildren and I have lots of friends with children. But I... I was. It was on my mind. I think the. I think women, the children, is always kind of on our minds. Society and whether for good or bad. Unfortunately, as we get older, those questions come into play. And I was because I'm a writer and because I've chosen to do something that's quite isolated and involves a lot of time alone and you know that kind of thing. I often wondered how would I would I be a good mother? Like how would I cope? What if I hate it? And I thought, if what if I hate it and then I regret the decision? What do people do? And what happened when I asked that question was people said, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Nobody regrets having a child. And I think being from Ireland as well, particularly, I just felt like, can that be true? Can I, I mean, it's a very unpalatable thing. And therefore, it is a taboo because there's no, if somebody regrets having a child, where do you go with that? That is a, what does the child do? We're all children if our parents said, I regret having you. What would that do to us? And yet, if I, I, I'm a firm believer, if you can imagine it, it's probably happened. And so the, the playwright instinct in me started basically to follow this fear in myself and to say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to write this and see where it takes me and what it what it pop, what pops up. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the specific concerns of the play in a little while Uh, but before we do I want to kind of go back into your past because 
this play being performed at the gate, uh, your mum being over in Dunleary and then coming in to watch it being performed, it must feel strange having a play about the maternal bond and then saying, Mum, <laughs> come and have a look. What do you think? I mean, what has she thought of it? I presume she saw it in its first incarnation. She did you're so? That's a really good question. And you know what? She's wonderful about it. She never has ever said, "Don't write anything because it will reflect badly." That's she doesn't think like that. In fact, when I was writing it and I was coming up against bits of resistance because people were actually quite fearful of this subject because eight years ago I think in the last eight years we've started to talk a lot about things like postnatal depression and I think we are interested in hearing women's stories and women's experiences dark and uncomfortable as they can be there's that those things are starting to be broken open but even eight years ago and as a writer without children people it was pressing buttons and I I remember when I was telling her about the play and saying I was worried um, she hadn't read it or anything at that point and she just was like no you're on the right path just keep going just go you know do it and she, she actually has said to me she felt that her own mother probably shouldn't have had children and she had eight and I don't think that's you know that to be honest I'm sure that's an experience of hundreds of women in this country you know that for generations that was sort of all women were allowed to do and so she She's certainly not the mother in the play. I mean, that that she couldn't be any more different. But she's 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 never kind of. She did once kind of go. I'm not that mother because I think she felt people w- might think it, but she isn't. It's more. It's more me following my own stuff, I think, and and my own worries. But I I thought it was interesting to hear that she felt, and I think I have heard more. You you'd be amazed how many people have said to me who've seen this play. You know, my mother was somebody who shouldn't have had children. And I think that's sad because it's it's just sad that 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 women didn't some women have have had that experience. It feels to me as though it was a particularly brave move on your part to pursue a career in writing full stop on whatever theme, because you are obviously uh, well, I say obviously, but maybe not everybody would know. But the the daughter of two very fine writers, Owen Harris and Anne Harris, uh, the former editor of the Sunday Independent, and Owen, of course, being a columnist and writer, um, did that. maybe create a sense of paralysis from a younger age when you were starting out you know the fear of the critic from within the kitchen yes I think I think the truth is it's not the critic I think they never I never felt any pressure from my parents to do anything actually they're very um, open-minded people and um, I think that's been the kind of the great thing I wanted to be a vet growing up and I think they would have all loved if I'd become a vet but for myself I think when you're from a family of writers and you go I you get a lot of projection like people going are you going to be a writer and I've always been a bit um, resistant of being put into a box by anyone and so for me I I didn't particularly want to be a writer and I um I I kind of rejected it possibly too much in a way in that I just was like that's not for me and I but I was writing all the time on my own in my room Uh, what kind of stuff were you writing just mad short stories little plays like things I wouldn't have even known what they were like just write I was compulsive about it and I used to tell myself stories and I was I was a total I loved storytelling loved stories but I I hadn't kind of put it together um and you know my dad used to say I think you're a writer I think that's and I would just never think about it and so um so I think maybe so there there was never any pressure from them it was more probably from myself that I 
I just wanted to, I, I needed to find my own way. And I, I kind of got there in a bit of a roundabout way because I ended up, I studied drama with classics and I thought I'll either be a classics teacher or I'll be a, uh, I'll be a, uh, something to do with drama. And as the years went, as the year went on, I realized I'm not an actor. I'm not a set designer. I started to kind of panic and think, what am I? And I had a, a difficult final year in my university. I nearly dropped out. I heard you mention that yeah. on Mary O'Callaghan's radio program on RTE. I was wondering what what was the trouble? What was nothing, the difficulty? Nothing like wonderfully interesting. Just that kind of stuff of your early twenties, you know, like kind of emotional stuff, or just I I don't know what happened. I had to drop a subject in my third year, which meant that in my final year I had to take extra subjects. So you're like already stressed during finals, doing dissertations, kind of wondering what you're going to do with your life when you leave the university. And it, I was just, I remember just feeling really overwhelmed and just not, I wanted to, just wanted to get out. Did you have a per- perfectionist vibe? Definitely had a perfectionist vibe. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> what did the school report say? <laughs> I think I didn't have a, if I didn't think I was particularly good at a subject, I was kind of fine. It was when I, if I put any pressure on myself to be good, it was a disaster. And so in my final year, I was writing all these academic essays and like swamped in reading and I literally playwriting all you had to do was make up a one act play and I thought well how bad could this play be I'll just make it up past the course and I'll move on and actually the course sort of saved me in that I realized why I loved the theater why I loved drama and why I'd even it just it was like it was like a, a homecoming or something I suddenly realized oh this is why I did this and I've been doing this all my life. A lot of people would advise that you shouldn't start writing fiction of any genre too young because there's this idea that you must live life in order to render it well on the page. I wonder what your thoughts would be on that, but but also what your thoughts would be in the context of the fact that probably from quite a young age, your life was more complicated maybe than your average because your parents had separated, you had two homes uh, in West Cork in uh, Baltimore, I think, and also in Dunleary in Dublin. And there must have been a lot of movement between one and the other and maybe a lot of thought as well about who you were and what family meant. We, my parents, um, they didn't, sep- like we didn't, we lived as a family together in, in West Cork in the early 80s, in the mid 80s. And um, then in, but they did separate when I was young and um, they amicably separated, but it was Ireland in the 80s and so people, people's families, people just didn't get separated. And I think that's something that people don't realize a, a about here. It makes you look at the idea of family. And also I had an older sister. I had a sister who was 12 years older than me. So my parents got married when they were 19 and 20 and they had a baby when they were 20. So they were babies with a baby. And then they had me 12 years on when they when things were more sort of sorted I guess so I grew up both my sister and I kind of grew up like only children but also with that kind of sibling thing and I think when you have that when you're sort of an only child or with an older sibling you're used to being with older people all the time but you're kind of ignored because you're the child in the room uh, not that my parents ignore me but other grown-ups so you just become a really good observer and I think that probably both the fact that maybe family was something 
interesting to me because my family looked different to other people's families but also literally my sibling relationship looked different to other people's families I think I I found people fascinating and how are you supposed to be in the world what's a family supposed to be if it's if it's not like my family and how do how are adults supposed to behave I think you do I, I that's my experience of of uh of only children um yeah well, certainly your work in uh, playwriting, you break down relationships, you know, sexual relationships, uh, friendships, all kinds of relationships. And uh, it was the University of Birmingham, actually, where you did your MPhil in playwriting studies. And you've been living in London. Um, there's a part of me that wonders if, and I say this, by the way, as someone who has three sisters and a brother and the brother is the only one who lives in England but there was an element of escape you know because I always think I always say to my brother like you know it makes sense that he would go somewhere else to be himself because of the weight of all the girls um, but in your case there was a weight of writers in the family so did it make sense to be yourself as a writer somewhere else? Well I didn't go to get away from Ireland or them even it just was I I just happened to want to be a playwright at a moment where there was no there actually was no where to study and I'd written this in my final troubled year in Trinity I'd written this one act play accident I would say actually quite quickly and, and almost like an accident and I didn't know whether I could do it again and so I asked my professor like if you wanted to like what will I do and because to me just will I just do it again like what do you so um he said, oh, there's this, actually, there's a course in Birmingham and Sarah Kane, who was a writer I admired, had done it and I'll, I'll give you a reference. So I applied and got in and then I didn't go. I went and I, I deferred and I worked in a clothes shop. I'd been working in shops through my degree. So I worked for a year, saved and then went. And so it was sort of because of that, that's how I went to Birmingham. But I do think it was kind of freeing because there was something about, and I think that's just, actually, I think that's probably it's not just even from being from a family of writers. I think sometimes being from a small country, it can be quite freeing. Go. You go on the plane, you get there and you realize absolutely nobody cares. Nobody no, cares. I could walk into town naked and no <laughs> one cares or knows me. So I think that was actually for me uh, kind of fascinating. And it took away, it took away an element of judgment because you're sort of like, if I make a fool of myself, none of these people will see me ever again. Um, and, but what I realized, the perfectionist instinct in me, per, it didn't. I didn't have it so much with playwriting. It wasn't that I, I'm not a perfectionist, but I'm kind of willing to try stuff with playwriting that I sort of, no, nothing else in my life had I ever sort of been willing to risk as much or put myself out there as much. But something about playwriting, it just drew me. And so I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, and I kind of found, I found there was challenges with being in another country, especially because the, my ear, my playwriting ear, which tunes into, into accents and things, I was suddenly hearing like all these different voices in Birmingham and stuff like that. And suddenly the kind of way I was writing was slightly changing. And that, um, that was sort of, a, I was kind of going, oh God, what, what voice am I writing in now? What accent am I going to write in? Who, what does it sound like? So things like that actually were, were the challenges for me. What I've really liked about your work is that it's a version of Ireland that I recognise and a type of character that there's an intellectual quality or an artistic quality that I also recognise as being true. Sometimes when I watch an Irish play or a play by an Irish person, 
it's not that I think that they're playing to the masses, but there are certain stereotypes of Ireland that do better abroad. Yeah. Those types of plays just sometimes succeed. And it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with them, but sometimes it can be a more old fashioned or anachronistic version of Ireland. So in your own work, do you seek to put that right in a way and say, no, this is Ireland. This is Ireland of 2020. I hope so. I, yeah, I'd like to think that I'm I'm writing about the Ireland that I know or that we're all in. Um, I suppose because I live in London, obviously coming back a lot because my family are all here, my friends and everyone I grew up with. But because I'm there, I'm aware all the time as to how we're all viewed as outsiders, how Irish people are viewed in America. Again, that was kind of interesting watching our, our new girl there because nobody was was the same nationality. And I think in my work, I've always been nervous, you know, because some of my work has gone on first in London, like this play. And I wrote another play called Two Ladies about first ladies. And, they, you know, that hasn't been on here. And I think I've always been nervous about just being an exoticism. I, w- I would want the work to be able to speak to, as, to, to, the, to the truth of both places. So if I, you know, I'd want my work to be able to speak. I, th- I, think, I don't think I could have written The Beacon for anyone else really other than Druid because I knew they would know that world really, really well and they do it really well. And um, whereas I don't know, I don't know how it would be interpreted in the UK. It'd be really interesting to see. Um, so it's so I think yes, I do. I do feel quite conscious of not wanting to peddle any ideas that that don't feel to me to be true. We've mentioned one or two playwrights. Sarah Kane um, mentioned earlier, but who did you actually grow up loving in terms of playwrights? Well, I think Sarah Kane was definitely because she was sort of she she was young and around at the time when I was in college. Or she well she had she had sadly committed suicide, but she was a big influence at that time. Um, I think the playwrights to impress me were actually yes, Sarah Kane, Mark Ravenhill, Martin Crimp. They were all writers, I suppose, that were going on in the UK at the time, and, then, and being viewed as very provocative and outrageous. Provocative, really provocative, and pushing the boundaries of theatre as far as they could, actually, and deliberately so. In fact, the whole point of theatre, in the, to many of them, was to kind of make it not a safe space, so that you really felt kind of implicated in many ways as as an audience or in that way and so uh those were the kind of playwrights that initially interested me and then I suppose playwrights like Edward Albee um I like I love his play The Goat another really provocative play about a taboo um uh and then I think as you get older you start to go to the uh, Marina Carr another playwright as well hugely influential I think probably one of the biggest here because she was the the most dominant a female playwright and and she was writing about things that felt really interesting and provocative too. Before we began talking we mentioned um, Waking the Feminist, the movement uh, which I mean most people in Ireland in the theatre world would be very familiar with it by this point but it's about achieving greater gender equality in theatre and such great work has been done um, in the past, what was it, five years or so, to really push for that, push for greater representation on the stage and behind the scenes, whether it's the writers, the directors, the lighting, the set design. Um, you were one of the people you know, who, who helped push. Um, from then to now, can you see that there is greater representation? Yeah, well, I, was, I, I spoke at the main event, but there was loads of amazing people that really pushed it um like Leon Bell like who just I think it was an extraordinary thing to do and it predated so much 
you know, we've just talked about women's stories and taboos and why does nobody talk about the taboo of the maternal instinct, apart from the fact that it's really uncomfortable to talk about because it's so, it's, it is an uncomfortable topic. I think partly why we don't talk about it is because we haven't heard from women. And so because those stories haven't been kind of being told, they seem really shocking. But do you still feel kind of shortchanged that your work gets put on first in London? Um, I think, yeah, I feel it took a long time for this play to come on here. There's no doubt about it. And um, I don't know if I feel shortchanged, but I feel like it has been, a, it was a struggle to get to get work on at times. And um, And there were times where I did kind of wonder... Am I banging my head against a door? And, you know, that I can't lie and say that's not true. And there were times where I kind of thought maybe that's that now. I had my plays on and there won't be any more. So this moment is really wonderful for me. And I, I really acknowledge that probably maybe this moment mightn't have happened for me with the beacon or the, the red shoes or, or our new girl without the work of waking the feminists to kind of say, no, there's an audience for this. People need to hear these stories and they're out there and there's other writers out there writing them, too. Did you ever feel pressure with regard to the types of stories that you were writing about to do what seemed to be the big story, if you like? I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, it is seen as though if a, a male writer writes about sex and relationships, it is the male take, the, the masterpiece <laughs> on, the, on the domestic reality, whereas sometimes if a woman does it, it's seen as a smaller work, just a smaller, littler work. But one of the, I suppose, the great things about the past few years in in the wake of well waking the feminists but also the marriage equality mm -hmm. um and repeal the eighth is that uh we've seen a real sea change in ireland in terms of equality and rights and so some of your work while not directly addressing some of those issues is certainly moving on in the wake of some of those issues yeah. so do you feel like, though, that you still have to justify, like if you write about sex and relationships, do you have to point at people and say, no, 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 there's more to it. You know, this is a history that I'm looking back at. Well, it's interesting you say it because I think people can be dismissive. Like, I think you say you're writing a play that's got kind of uses the genre tropes of a thriller um, to kind of tell a story that's actually about it and, and a, a taboo, a, a proper taboo. Um, there can be kind of a dismissal. And I remember one of the things that started the the idea of our new girl was that and remember this was before waking the feminists and all, and all of that but in in the UK there was quite common for people to say well you know it, we can't get women playwrights on the big stages like you know the national theater or the RSC or whatever because they're just not writing those big plays they don't write big historical political plays they write they just tend to write domestic dramas and um and apart from like the fact that I remember thinking that's not true, I also thought, who says the domestic isn't political? And so for women, I think the domestic is extremely political. And, and it was political for Ibsen and things like that. But I think I think women. So I kind of set out to write a domestic play that was also a political play. And I hope that that's what I did in Our New Girl. I mean, I hope it works on multiple levels. But I, I think you're right that... Um, that there's kind of an assumption that that's a domestic play and that's all it is instead of a play can actually be doing many different things at the same time and that's the joy of a play a good play do you think that being an artist is often incompatible with being a mother i think because being an artist requires a degree of selfishness because i'm i feel very lucky to be in the position of writing plays because i know you know that i'm very fortunate but there is a degree of selfishness you're getting to sit and do 
what you want and focus on your on your ideas and all of that and also it requires shutting out the rest of the world to some extent um you know the pram and the hall all of that sort of stuff what's that line the pram and the hall is the enemy of the don't I can't remember the pram and the hall. We basically just know or something. Yeah, we know, know that if there's a pram in the hall, there's no book. There's no book. <laughs> well, I remember somebody, a, a, a famous writer, saying you should let your child go hungry. If you've got a great play, you let the child go hungry. And there was a part of me that thought, oh, that's awful. And another part of me went, absolutely. If you've thought of a good line or a good scene, you keep going and you get that scene down because you might lose it for the rest of the day. And you know, m- my fiance unfortunately knows that that can be true like if he if he if he disturbs me and you lose the train of thought it's unforgivable and um and you know not for everybody but clearly I'm a monster how did you guys get together in the first place we met in London uh in a bar five years ago in 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 central London in, in actually the Curzon cinema it's a cinema bar and uh yeah we he's a teacher and we we met and got together and the rest is history. So no Tinder or anything like that? No, not going to say. <laughs> yeah, convincing. We met in a bar. I've, uh, I've promised him that I will not speak or share of anything that he hasn't given prior approval to. So I'm, I've, I've been given a, a barring order on that one. Sorry. But you're not going to directly lie. <laughs> well, you know. He's from Ghana. Um, how has that been in terms of, I guess, cultural differences and, and what you've learned and, and how the two of you have grown together? What have I learned? God loads everything. I suppose the fundamental, I, did, I didn't know anything about Ghana before I met him and now I've been there and we got engaged there and it's beautiful and fascinating and brilliant country. Um, I would quite like to sometimes come back to Ireland. That's been something I've, I've loved to do. But when you're in a five year long relationship, that's not a decision that you just make. And so in a way, we're both kind of outsiders in a city together. And so that kind of works well. And he's learned a lot about the Irish, which he loves as well. And but, fi- I, you know, sometimes when you're when you're he's a scientist, he's a chemistry teacher. So when you're with a scientist, you can sometimes feel that you're being looked at as a micro, as an interesting scientific experiment. <laughs> and he he does. He thinks Ireland is so, you know, fascinating and the people are so exuberant and just natural storytellers, which we all know is the kind of thing that people say Um but you, you, when you were, you were with someone like that, you do sort of start to watch yourself and realize that there are things. And same with Ghanaians, you know, but they, um, you know, he, he, they're really friendly, but kind of reserved. His family, it could be just his family. But so you start to learn, you start to notice those things about each other. And once you realized that he was someone who was important to you and you knew you would bring him to meet your parents, were you more concerned about bringing him to meet your mum or your dad? um was I more concerned about bringing him I wasn't concerned about either of them I knew they wouldn't let me down I did say I think you used a phrase about my dad that he's both entertaining and provocative so I warned him I said you know he's not going to keep his he's not someone who keeps his opinions to himself but he enjoys that he actually and he's he's somebody who is very interested in ideas and provocations so I think for him it's sort of fascinating to watch uh the way you know debates arguments things like that he's not he's not afraid of them 
What was the setup? Did you bring him to Baltimore? Did you do a Christmas thing? No, I brought him to Baltimore. I actually, we came over for the summer and we went down to West Cork um, to see my dad and I introduced him and we spent a few days and I showed him around. I wanted him to have a really good impression of Ireland, so I brought him somewhere beautiful. And then we came up to Dublin and he met my mother and my sister and everyone else. So he, yeah, but I, he and, he, and as such, he has really connected to West Cork and just loves it down there. And so he wants to get married there. Yeah, you're getting married in July. Congratulations. Yeah, so and and where in West Cork, dare I ask? In a Shannon. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's near the airport. <laughs> that was because you know that it can. I mean, you have all these ideas, but I was like, actually, just, you know, for having people flying from Ghana and all sorts, let's just keep it easy. They can find it. Mm. So. And um, ordinarily, I'm reluctant to ask women this question in interviews, but I am going to ask it to you because of the fact that your play concerns itself so so much with the maternal bond you know has it been on your mind around that the children idea and you know it's not something we have to get into too much um but you know it, it is something that uh leaving aside any ideas about careers or a question I would ask a woman and not ask a man I mean this is one that for you does seem to to play a role in your work I'm, it's a subject I'm really interested in and I'm really happy to talk about it. I think the what I, so t- for me, I never really knew that I definitely wanted to have children, but I didn't know that I didn't want to have children. And I still don't know that in at the age I am now, late 30s. And uh, it seems to me that people either go one way or the other and they kind of do know. And um, the question I get asked, and I don't know if you do, is what if you regret it? Oh, I get that. You get that, yeah. Yeah. What if you regret it? And um, the drive hasn't been so strong in me that, like, I have I have friends that I know it's a it's a great sadness for them, and and maybe it could be for me. And and what I feel about that is sometimes we just have to live with we have to learn to live with things and hard things in life, you know, griefs and losses and sometimes regrets. And um, so my feeling on it is, you know, if I still don't know is the answer. I don't know that I want to be a, a mother and I don't know that I don't. It's. I think you. I grew up with all the same ideas as anyone else. I imagined myself as a mother. I thought about those things and I still think about them writing plays, a lot of plays about motherhood. Um, and yet I also kind of, so I'm very, and I'm very interested by women who haven't had children, who never wanted them or for whatever reason, I, but I think you can have a good life either way. And I think that's the important thing. I think that sometimes as women we're sort of made to feel that we have to we have to follow certain um, paths and I'm really in, and I think when you asked me about the artist I, th- I think probably didn't finish the thought but what I meant was because art is actually an artist takes something for herself that's something that women have not been traditionally encouraged to do to follow their own paths to say you know what writing this play is actually more important to me than putting dinner on the table or doing your washing or whatever and that's still kind of an uncomfortable thing to say. You, I'm still here saying this into your microphone going, oh God, am I going to sound awful that I would rather write a play than feed my child if I had a child. But but there it is. And so I think that is why the female artist is a transgressive idea because the female artist goes, I have something to say and it's more important than anything else and I want to say it. And, um, and I find that a really fascinating and exciting thing for women who have so long done things for everyone else and or my grandmother or your grandmother having children because there was no other option for them I won't keep you too much longer um I did want to ask a little bit about 
your uh, capacity to creep in on your audience at plays and what it feels like to sit in the dark, you know, next to rows of people who are watching the work that you put very painstakingly together you know, day after day and to look at them and have that experience because I think it must be a kind of incredible experience. Um, Our New Girl has been running uh, for the past few nights. It's premiering uh, as we speak and record this tomorrow night. So will you be there at the premiere? Will you duck in? Will you wear, I don't know, a cap? (laughs) 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 Will you sit in the front row or the back? I kind of sit where they put me, I think. Um, I... It, it look it's ama- it's amazing to watch a play with an audience actually it really is and um you know it's it can tell you so much and you know sometimes it can be the real saving grace you know if 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 a play has had a hard time and to feel that an audience has actually really liked it it can really it can tell you everything about what you've done um because my play two ladies in london had a polar quite a polarizing reaction um and so um and it was really interesting to see that audience come out and talking about the play and really engaged by the ideas of the play. Oh, you totally creep on people as they get out of the aisle well, then. You know what, I, I you have, if you go to the toilet, there's no avoiding knowing what they think of it. And um, and I've also been in a lift with people that have just seen my play because the play in New, the theatre in New York, you could only get into the theatre by the lift. And so I literally stood in the theatre, in the lift with people going, what do you think happened at the end of that play? <laughs> and, and me going... <laughs> so... I um that has actually happened so I you know it <laughs> it is a really um it, it's it is a nerve-wracking experience especially if it's if you feel like that something is going slow or going wrong but it's also a really rewarding experience when you feel like people are really engaging and engaged all right well I guess we're gonna have to get you to report back uh listen Nancy Harris it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on my roots are showing and thank you so much for taking the time now we do ask all our guests to pick one little song that we're going to play a few bars from to close out uh for the podcast uh anything whether or not you feel it represents you or it's just a song that you absolutely love so is there something you'd like to pick anything by Mary Coughlin and Billie Holiday Mary Coughlin sings Billie Holiday beautifully so any of those songs that work she, she you you could pick that one I, I'll like any of them perfect Nancy thank you so much our new girl runs until March 21st at the Gate Theatre in Dublin them that's got shall get them that's not shall lose so the Bible says and it still is news Mama may have Papa may have God bless the child Who's got his own My thanks once again to Nancy Harris And of course, although we had hoped that you would be able to see our new girl at the Gate Theatre, unfortunately that is no longer possible for the moment owing to the coronavirus restrictions. But we do hope that it will make a return to the stage of the Gate Theatre when better times come. And they will come. A final word? If you'd like to support this podcast, well please do. How can you do that? You can subscribe on iTunes, you can leave us a kind review wherever you get your podcasts and you can spread the word. You can talk about it to your friends. God knows now is a very good time to be listening to podcasts. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Nadina Regan and you can follow the show page on Twitter at My Roots Our Show. My DMs are also open, so feel free to drop me a line. Wherever you're listening, I hope you're staying safe and well and washing those hands. Till the next time, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Do take care. Money.